good hymns of the faith, right? We need to keep them uh, alive so they don't die off on us. And uh, But that's that was a good time of worship, and uh, as it is every week, as uh, those people come every morning to... Uh, to practice and to bring the praise songs and to the hymns of the faith to us every Sunday morning. They have to come early to do that and uh, have to put the time in so they everything works together. So we, I, we just appreciate them. And uh, thank you very much. Let's uh, bow together a word of prayer. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and then 1 Thessalonians and then also 1 Corinthians. So let's pray. Lord, this morning... As we look at your word, I pray that, Lord, again, you would take it and mold us and shape us with it, Lord. Challenge us with the word of God so uh, your word becomes what you want us to do in our life and that our will would be changed uh, to your will. And I pray, Lord, that your name would be honored as we consider uh, the word of God and the implications it has in our daily life. And I pray that you would bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this morning, let's again take our Bibles, and I eventually will be looking at uh, Thessalonians, but let's go back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse number uh, 14, and then Deuteronomy 15 verse 18, which really says the same thing. We're looking at the seventh commandment this morning. Uh, it is the commandment... Uh, that is very direct. It, it was for the people of Israel, and it is still, its implications still have uh, strong effects in our life as believers, and that becomes, of course, out of the law of God. But remember this that the Old Testament law was never a ladder for unsaved people to climb up to heaven, it was never. For that, the law of God brings us bad news. Uh, through the law of God, I discover that I am not a person who finds that I that I discover that I I'm, I'm a person that it finds it difficult to let God be God. Uh, that the law of God reflects uh, some aspect of the character and the glory of God. So when I look at the law, I see that I fall short of the glory of God that I have broken the law, and that I cannot keep it, and of, therefore that I fall under its curse. See, the law reveals to me that I am not good, and actually that I am a sinner and a rebel against God. Now, not, we're not looking at ourselves like that, but when we look at the Word of God, that's how the Word of God presents us as uh, people who fall into sin, and that Sin, the sin of Adam is transmitted unto us, and therefore we also have the nature of sin and will sin. And so when we come to the New Testament, we find and discover the same thing, where it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then 1 John 3 tells us everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And here's a definition for sin. Sin is lawlessness. That means you are living without any law, without any guidelines from the Word of God and from God Himself. You're living on your own based on what you think and the way you think you should live. When you come to the law of God, you realize that, wow, the Word of God, and in the Ten Commandments, it's showing us how God, what God requires of us, not only in worshiping Him, but how to interact with people. So the law of God is like an x-ray to the soul. God holds the x-ray to the light and asks us to look at it. If you are looking at it properly, we will, we will not like what we see. Uh, so then the law is like a light to expose our sin and that we are sinners by nature and by practice. Yet, the law of God is a good thing, for it shows us the truth. It shows us the genuine state of our hearts. It shows us that we cannot rescue ourselves from its condemnation. Thank God the law announces 
our need of Christ. Remember what it says in Galatians. It says that the law of God was our teacher to bring us to Christ. And as one translation put it, let me put it another way, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. So the whole point of the law was to show the show sinners their need of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, of the Deliverer, of the Savior. So today, for believers, the law, it shines in our souls. And when we look at the law, God says to us, we have to admit that he is speaking directly to the primary battles of our own heart. These are the things we battle with in the Ten Commandments. No matter when you lived, you're going to battle with these things. So the Ten Commandments speaks to this, the most significant struggles of human experience. The law of God keeps us running back to Christ. That's what it keeps us doing. And that's where that is a good place to be, and that's the place we ought to be. So this morning, as we look at Exodus 20, in verse number 4, it says simply, you shall not commit adultery. So that's a clear command. And as I mentioned last time in that command, it is really the seventh commandment expresses a, the responsibility of God's people to honor the marriage institution by remaining faithful to one's own spouse and by respecting the marriage of other people. In fact, the, the children's catechism says this, the result of the, the seventh commandment for children is to be pure in heart and language and conduct. That's the result. That's where it will bring us. So God, again, is serious about fidelity, about purity, about morality, because God is a moral being, and he has created people in his image as moral beings, and he will hold people morally accountable for how they live their life. So when humanity rejects God's rule and then asserts its own rule, violating and perverting God's fixed order of moral law, if God's moral law and absolutes are violated, then there is always a then. All right? There's always a then. There are serious consequences. So it's really living in lawlessness. So then that God is serious about his marriage institution, he's the one who designed it, because it reflects God's faithful relationship to his covenant people uh, and to his people himself. And the bottom line in connection with the seventh commandment is, well, the question would be, why should I not commit adultery? The bottom line would be this, is because God is faithful. He's faithful to us. And really the, the implication of not committing adultery is being faithful to your spouse. Since Christians are God's people, the greatest challenge for God's people is to reflect the character of God in the world. When we live, when we live out our faithfulness to our spouse and to God himself, we honor him and we honor the marriage institution by reflecting something of the glory of God in our very actions, our very words, our conduct. And that's exactly what's supposed to happen. And that's what the Spirit of God is going to do. We're going to look at that a bit because you cannot do that on your own. Don't, don't ever be under the assumption that anyone can keep the law or keep uh, living for the Lord in communicating these attributes in our daily walk in life on your own. You cannot do it on your own. You, you need God's power to do it. So, so far we've been looking at several things, and it would be that uh, the four things to maintain or to hold marriage in higher honor would be to maintain a correct mindset concerning marriage, of course, uh, maintain a correct 
the correct behavior in marriage, and we saw that from Hebrews 13, and to maintain a correct view of God in marriage. So the, the, the last Lord's Day, we were considering the will of God concerning how to understand and live out our sexuality so as to please God. And so that was brought us to that the fourth one, and of course that the fourth one uh, included 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now, this last one, to maintain a correct and a consistent conduct that aligns with pleasing God, is really uh, where Paul is going in his uh, teaching the Thessalonians about uh, coming from a, an idolatrous, uh, sexually impure culture to now meeting the holy God who re- has requirements on how we are to live. So uh, the epistle of the is, is being taught to these former idolatrous Thessalonians to provide a perspective uh, that is really too often neglected in a sexually intoxicated culture like theirs and like ours. So the point, if you're right there, and I'd like you to turn to Thessalonians, in Thessalonians chapter 3 and 4, we see there that it is the Lord who is, is teaching us that uh, there is a way to live in our life that is honoring to the Lord. And so Paul is telling that, and in First Thessalonians 3, verse 13, he says, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. And then, of course, in chapter 4, verse 7, what God has not called us uh, for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So that is how you and I are to conduct ourselves as we go in and out of living our life on the earth. Not only is there unattained maturity, but there is also uh, that we need to grow into, but there's also old taboos and lifestyles and practices that we need to drop off as as Christians. So the scripture really now gets very specific about uh, what that means, that Christians are called to the highest standard of living. It is in, in this passage before us, we will see God's will in uh, in the matter of our purity, which we looked at some of these already, this is by way of review, and then God's provision in order to maintain purity, and then God's uh, revenge for our failure in purity. So the first thing that we already mentioned is that it is God's will for our sexual purity. Now, if you look up to verse number 3 of chapter Four of Thessalonians, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, how are we to do that? Well, he already mentions here that we are to pursue a life of holiness. That means your sanctification. God's will is the thing God wants, and so God wants what God wants is what pleases him. And what does he want? He wants us to know his will. And it's very clear what his will is right here in this passage. And of course, his will is our sanctification. He wants us to live separated lives unto him. That when believers do come to Christ in all their sin, and they receive the cleansing of the atoning death of Christ, then every day we become more and more set apart to God as the Word of God transforms our minds and as the Spirit of God does His work in making us holy, uh, this means to be set apart wholly to God and separated in a consecrated, uh, the consecration of life and conduct. And then, of course, that means in our passage that we are, if you notice the word, in, in the, that we are to live a life of abstinence. We are to keep free from any form of sexual immorality. All right, And so this verb, to abstain, is really means to keep away from. And so the Christian is to have nothing to do with any form of, the again, the Greek word pornea, or sexual immorality, 
we are to treat that like we would treat uh, a sign that says high voltage. And of course, if you're being wise about that sign, you're going to stay away from anything that has that sign unless you get fried. And so, again, we should consider that this word pornea, or we get the word porn or pornography from, uh, is used here in an all-inclusive term designating complete abstinence to any form of sexual immorality. And there are many forms of it. Some people may say, well, the Bible isn't talking about this form. No, he's talking about all forms because we can be very human beings can be very creative when it comes to this particular, and may I say very powerful sin, temptation to sin this way. This includes abstinence from any real or imagined sexual deviant behavior. And as I mentioned last time, as the Lord said, that we can commit adultery in our own mind without even committing the act of it. So see, God wants us to take care of our sin inside of our heart where the Word of God would, again, teach us that that is not pleasing even in our thoughts. Uh, so we have to be very careful uh, about that as believers. And, and that bring, brought me to my second point, and that would be uh, God's provision is our self-control, that in this we are to have self-control in verse number 4, where it says that each of you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. So what are we to know very well here? We are to learn to know to practice the habit of purity from our very thoughts to our very words to our very actions. That your habit of sin becomes your habit of holiness and righteousness. So in this passage, the believer, uh, I believe the emphasis in verse 4 is on getting a handle on learning how to keep your own body under control so you will preserve it for purity right up until the day you get married or you meet Jesus, whatever comes first. Or maybe you won't get married, and so you are, maybe the Lord's given you the gift of singleness, and that's all right. Uh, but he still expects a person to live righteously. So it's for, for this reason, uh, when we ask the question, why do you restrain yourself and give your members over to the power of the Spirit of God for righteous living? Well, because you learn to obey God and love the Lord and love his word and know his word is true. And you endeavor imperfectly to live a life of holiness and godliness. And godliness, remember, it says in Timothy, takes practice. We have to practice godliness. So this must be the primary reason to abstain from sexual immorality. And the, and the primary reason would be not only that God is faithful to you, but we are to be faithful to God and love him. And that, that would bring me today to the third point in verse number, uh, chapter 4, verse 6 of this, and that is the revenge. God's revenge is our terrifying motivation. And if you notice in verse number 6, notice what it says, and I'll just read the, the whole passage there. It says, and it says, well, it, it talks about there and uh, in Scripture that, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this manner. That means in the manner of not living a pure life, not living a holy life. So, in other words, without uh, that first part of that verse, uh, you refuse to put yourself in jeopardy and to defraud your future partner. It says there in verse 6, don't sin against your brother or sister in this way. That means to transgress them. And that word there means to go too far or to go beyond what is right. And then it also says that no man defraud his brother. Of course, and 
or sister in this manner, meaning to take advantage of someone or to cheat them of something. This all means that any and all acts of sexual looseness represents an act of injustice towards someone else, and God is concerned about that, and he wants his people to live in a way that is honoring to him because with this powerful sin, this this sexual infidelity, there needs to be a soberness and a healthy spiritual fear that should be present when we consider a sin like this. And the reason why is because it's so easily fallen into uh, right in our thinking and in our minds. All we have to do is be on the Internet, and one click away is an image that's going to tempt you to think about things you ought not to as a believer, and it's going to lead you into further sin. So that all sexual looseness before marriage symbolizes the robbing of the other of that virginity which ought to be brought only to the marriage. So the scripture really does give the reason why this sort of conduct needs to be completely avoided in all relationships, whether you want to call it dating or whether you want to call it courtship or going steady or any other way people may mention that, uh, there are reasons to stay away from that uh, kind of conduct. And one of them right here is in verse number 6 where it says this, Remember... The Lord is an avenger of wrongs. He's an avenger of wrongs. Notice it says, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So we see in this passage of Scripture, there is a warning that is coming to these Thessalonian believers and to us today Uh, to avoid such conduct. And why is that? Because God is the one who punishes. There There should always be some kind of terrifying motive that we have as believers when it comes to sin. Not only should we grow to hate our sin, but we should grow to be afraid to sin. All right, And why is that? Because I, you and I, as believers, live under the watchful eye of God. And we also have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. And we know that the Holy Spirit of God can be grieved and can be quenched by what we think about and also by what we do. There's no place we can go that the, the eyes of the Lord are hidden or that we can hide away from the eyes of God. There's, there's Wherever we go, God goes. God knows what we're up to. So this this first reason here that we are to remember the Lord is an avenger of wrongs, especially in this area of sexual purity and impurity, and the first reason is really to avoid such sexual misconduct does appeal to the fear of the consequences of disobedience. So if one is truly saved, they will heed the warnings. And any discipline the Lord would give them at a particular point in their life if they have fallen into this sin, and they will repent, and they will give evidence of their salvation. So you and I are warned today from Scripture not to take lightly society's lackadaisical attitude concerning sexual conduct, that the Word of God strongly, strongly warns of God's judgment and punishment on those who live impure lives. Now, we do know that the Thessalonians were actually living this way because he compliments them. 
And he says to them, listen, are you're living this way. Now, now don't stop there. Keep on abounding in that kind of lifestyle. Keep on growing in the Lord. So that becomes such a habit in your life that you even stop thinking about it and the temptation becomes less powerful for you as the Lord begins to fill our minds and transform our minds and keep our minds on the will of God. And the second reason that we are to have this sort of conduct in our life is found, of course, in verse number 7, which I mentioned already, where it says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, because God called us to holiness. And it says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So this second reason is pointing us backward to what God has done. And what has he done? Our effectual call to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation also means that we were called to a certain kind of living, that God had a definite purpose in mind concerning the way we should live our everyday life. To live in sexual impurity is to rebel against God's purpose in his calling you to be his children. So you, you can mark this on your calendar. No matter which way you may think or someone else may, in, may impose upon you, that is how you should live your life. In other words, opposite to what God says, it's clear here uh, that you are not to live for the purpose of impurity or impure motives but instead you have been called by God to live a life of holiness, sanctification, dedication. And I, I, I do want to just stress uh, that word in verse number 7 and that God has not called you to something, but he's called you to something else. So God has called us for a decent sex life consistent with his aims and his purposes. So it was necessary for the Apostle Paul to place this lofty ideal before the Thessalonian Christians while they're living in a very pagan and, of course, sexually intoxicated world. It's equally true now, is it not? It's equally important now that your call to Christ will not allow you to live in a way you used to live. That all immoralities must be avoided as being inconsistent with God's gracious call of you. So you, you cannot live as if you do not know God anymore. You cannot live as if God's not there and God doesn't see or God doesn't matter. See, what he requires Christians to have in their calling is to be progressively made more and more holy every day. It's called theologically progressive sanctification. We talked a little bit about that this morning. Sanctification, of course, happens after someone repents of their sin, comes to Christ, at which point they are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with God's Word, and the cooperation of the sinner to cooperate with God's word begins to grow the Christian in Christ-likeness, in holiness, in godliness. In fact, Puritan Thomas Watson summarized the principles of sanctification as such, uh, and of course it was gathered by Dr. Richard Mayhew in his book, uh, in an article on sanctification, and he said this, Thomas Watson, sanctification is a salvific work that is continued by God in this life unto completion in heaven. That means we'll never become perfect this side of eternity, but we will be set apart more and more by the Spirit on this side of eternity, making us ready for the presence of God where once we drop off these bodies, we'll go into the presence of the Lord and be perfect. He said also sanctification is a salvific work that cannot be separated from salvation or 
and or glorification, that real salvation will lead to glorification. But we're not going to be glorified here on this side of eternity. And sanctification, he said, also is a salvific work of God which once begun cannot be lost or stopped or be undone. That the Lord, once he starts working on you, he will finish work on you until the day of Jesus Christ, right? He will finish the work that he started in us, in saving us and transforming us. Also, he said this, sanctification is a salvific work of God that prompts a holy response of biblical obedience from those who are genuine saints. In other words, once you become a believer, one thing that happens is I want to obey. I want to do what God wants me to do. That, that, it's a given. It's a, it, the Spirit of God puts that desire in our heart that we're motivated by obedience. He also said that sanctification is a salvific work of God that does not eradicate sin. We will never become sinless on this side of eternity. Sin will be eradicated when we are glorified, when we have new bodies in heaven. Also, sanctification is a salvific work that provides confident hope in this life because of a certain eternal hope in the next life. All right? Several passages of scriptures that come to mind where Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them, John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And then he says, now just look right there in First Thessalonians, look at chapter 5 and verse number 23, being that you should still be there. It says this, therefore, First Thessalonians 5, 23, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared, for every good work. And then, excuse me, verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, that the Lord is going to take us through this whole process of sanctification. For what reason? That we would be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ at the end, right? So in other words... God is, doesn't save someone and leaves them. God is right there working on you. Even when you don't cooperate, he's working on you. Because he's going he's to bring you to the place where you want to cooperate. And he's going to show you your sin, and he's going to bring that to light. And, of course, that sin is going to be the thing that you're going to want to put to death and put aside because you realize it's hindering your forward growth in Christ Jesus. Warren Worsby tells of a church member who criticized, criticized her pastor because he was preaching against sin in the lives of Christians. And she says, after all, she said, sin in the life of a believer is different from sin in the life of an unsaved person. He said, yes, replied her pastor, it's worse. It is true Christians are not under the condemnation of sin, but it is also true that they are not exempt from the harvest of sorrow that comes when Christians sow to the flesh. Because remember, the, the sow, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap a harvest. If you sow to holiness and godliness, you will also reap that harvest. And that is the harvest that God wants us to reap. He wants us to reap a harvest of holiness and godliness, right? And of course, that brings me to a third reason why this sort of conduct uh, needs to be completely avoided. If you look at verse number 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, go back a chapter, and it, here it is, that the ultimate standard, this sort of conduct needs to be uh, completely avoided because God's Spirit is the ultimate standard. It says in verse 8, consequently... He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So in other words, anyone who treats sexual sin as no big deal is actually treating God and his word as of no account. And how are they doing that? By resisting the sanctifying process of the Holy Spirit. If you notice the end of that verse, God has given his Holy Spirit to you as a down payment 
as someone who seals you until the day of redemption and someone who leads you into truth. So the truth sanctifies your mind. So this word here, it says there, he who rejects, this word means to refuse or to ignore, to invalidate the word of God, that those who justify their licentious behavior, they do not uh, hesitate to set aside and uh, God and sin against God who is present at the moment. So here we have a person who takes God's demand for sexual purity so lightly that he or she makes it void by refusing to obey it. So they are, they are forgotten, as we already said, that God is an avenger and has given the Holy Spirit to empower saints in their struggle for holiness, and it will be a struggle. So to go on to live in impurity is a direct insult to the divine giver, and it is a sin against the Holy Spirit who is the power unto holiness that he's given to us. So to live in sexual impurity without any repentance is to reject God. A professing believer who commits and continues in impurity without genuine repentance can have no assurance of their salvation. That's one thing that sin does. If you're living in sin, you're not assured of your salvation because sin is opposite of what God wants to do with you. So in other words, you lose your assurance. Uh, and of course, a Christian who's in the family of God should expect discipline from the Heavenly Father because the Heavenly Father is not going to allow his children to live any old way they want. He's going to discipline them. And discipline is for our good. But it's, it leads us to what? That we would know the holiness of God and want to live a holy life. So if a person is truly saved, they will heed the warning and any discipline and will repent, giving evidence of their salvation. So the Christian life is not a matter of believing in Jesus and then trying our best to live according to God's law. God's promise is that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will come, he will reside in you, in your life, and you will receive power, and that power will make the difference between a battle in which you are destined for defeat and a battle in which there will be ultimate victory. There is the difference that God, the Holy Spirit, is living inside the believer. And as the believer yields their life to the Holy Spirit, he, the Holy Spirit, cleanses and then creates holy desires within us. The Holy Spirit also empowers us to walk in holiness and not be detoured into the lust of the world and into the lust of the flesh and into the pride of life and into the lives of Satan. So it is by walking in the Spirit that we get victory over the lusts of the flesh. And that's what Paul said in Galatians 5.16, but I say to you, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And every day, that's how we are to do. And walking means not walking means to live your life uh, every single day, and live your life in what God requires from the Word of God. And in doing so, the Spirit of God will empower you to live holy. So, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that makes our body, which is considered the temple of God, where the Spirit of God dwells, it makes it makes uh, us. Uh, realize that wherever we go with our body, we go with the Holy Spirit. And so that, that becomes a consideration for, for all believers when we consider uh, this understanding of what the Bible teaches about sexual purity. Now, thinking of that, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want you to notice, we're going to be looking at verse 15 through verse 
Well, look, look, let's look at verse number 12, and let me just read it. It says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your body are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sin against, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, so that passage of Scripture is really pointing out to us that, in a sense, giving us a scriptural view of sexual impurity, enabling us at the same time to fight with the goal to victory, to think about it the right way, to have God's point of view on it. Now, that's the passage. But in that passage, there are several things and here are, here, here are, here's the things that we want to identify. Number one, sexual impurity misuses the body, where it says, yet the body is not for immorality. So any kind of sexual impurity, no matter what it may be, or how, however people may define it, it, is, it misuses your physical body. And secondly, uh, sexual immorality drags Christ into your sin. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. We shouldn't be even thinking like that. We don't want to drag the Lord into our sin. And then the next two things it says there is that sexual immorality in verse number 18 and 19 is a sin against the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why it says flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So their sexual impurity is uh, against the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit indwells your body. He lives within you. And of course, brings me to that last thing it said, it, we mentioned in the passage, and that sexual impurity misuses something that belongs to God. What, what, what belongs to God, if you notice in verse 19b and 20, it says, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And what is that price? That price is the, the precious shed blood and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. What it took, he did on the cross, what it took to pay for us to satisfy the justice of the Father on the cross so we can be saved is something that cannot escape our mind. It's, some, and it's something that needs to be in our mind every day. And the reason for that is because that's what God did for us. And when we actually think that way, we can actually glorify God in our body and not misuse our body. So, that, so then to, to write off what God commands as nothing, is to invite the judgment of God, and it is also to grieve the Spirit of God. Now, according to the book of Proverbs, the teaching of wisdom warns young men and women to be very wary about going down a path that is lined with sweet smells, glittering lights, 
and enticing words and delicious promises because that's how sin is usually presented to us, right? It's, pre- it's not presented as something ugly. It's, pre- it's presenting as something desirable. Wow, that, that looks like I want to be involved with that. That looks like fun. That looks like it's going to uh, feel good. That looks like, wow, you know, that, that looks like it's got some great promises that I'd like to be involved with. That's what sin is. Sin is given to us as a desirable package. I want it. Now, notice uh, up on the screen some of the things that happen when a person, uh, here's wisdom being taught to young people. This is what, how it goes, all right? Look what it says, the first one. Could you see that? All right, unbiblical thinking is I, I, it, it will feel good, right? Uh, the Word of God says in Proverbs 5, verse 3 and 4, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech, but in the end she is bitter as warm, warm wood, sharp as a two-edged sword. What's the real experience? It will produce shame and guilt. Of course, sin doesn't tell you in front that it's going to produce shame and guilt. It never mentions that. Satan will always lie to you, and temptation will never give you the end result. But see, that's the, the key with wisdom. Wisdom thinks about if I have this thought, if I'm temp- tempted in this way, it's going to lead to this at the end. I'm not going to, why do I want to do that? That's foolish. That's the point. You don't want to be foolish. Notice the second thing is it will make me feel better. It says in Proverbs 5, 11 through 14, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say how I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. So in other words, it's going to produce regret if someone falls into the sin. Why? Because they're going to say, I knew what to do and I didn't listen. And I reap the results. Right Now, of course, I think we all can say at some point in our Christian life that we have regret, that we have fallen into a sin and knew it was wrong before we did it and fell into it anyway, and then felt the regret of sinning, right? And so a, a wise person does not want to feel the regret of sinning anymore, all right? And the way they do that is they learn every day to walk in holiness. And then notice the third one, uh, no one will know. Right? Look what it says in Proverbs 5.21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. So in other words, I'm going to need to confess it openly. Why? Because God, God knows what I'm doing. He knows where I'm going, and I shouldn't be there. Why? I'm taking the temple of the Holy Spirit into a situation that I don't belong. And, uh, and so... Again, wisdom. Then here's a, just another uh, set. It'll not hurt anyone. You hear that all the time, right? I'm not hurting anybody if I do this. But notice Proverbs 5, uh, verse 8 and 9. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And then Proverbs 5.22, the evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. And then in chapter 7, verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. And of course, that means saying that it won't hurt anybody, actually it will waste your time and energy. It could also ruin your health. 
It will ruin your relationships because trust will be gone. It will hurt your wife, and for a woman, it will hurt your husband. It will ensnare like a trapped animal. And then, of course, in the end, it will uh, you will give your glory to another. That means you'll rob God of his glory. And so, and then one one last one, just to give you a sense of Proverbs, is is this, well, wow, that looks good. And, and, and temp, sin, sin is always given to us as something that looks good, right? It's, it's, it, remember, the eye gate, what goes into your eye is very important because it's going to get into your mind. So what I'm looking at, if I look too long, then it's going to start capturing me, capturing my attention. Notice what it says, she looks good, but notice what it says in Proverbs 7, verse 26 and 27, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. So what is she? The sin to be led into sexual immorality, it's, it's really a sin that leads, it's disguised with destruction. It's disguised with death ultimately. And so, in other words, that a wise person doesn't want to go there. All right, so let's conclude some things this morning. The principles in the seventh commandment are related to life today. Uh, There are several of them, and I want to look at some, some of them, but I just want you to listen. And if you're writing, taking notes, you should take some of these down because there are some helpful steps Uh, to consider to avoid these kinds of sins. The first one is this. The first one is this, that you must make yourself aware of the downward spiral of temptation that leads to sin. And I said, what do you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. I mean that what you see will lead to a desire to have which will lead to move your will to actually take it. So in other words, you have to arrest the process of temptation before it gets to the end result. Here's a good example. If you notice, I just want want you to see the highlight. It says, this is David's sin with Bathsheba where he committed adultery. Notice what it says. It says that he saw a woman bathing and then... Also, secondly, he inquired about the woman. Now, she was a married woman, right? And then in verse 4, he took her, and then when she came to him, he laid with her. All right? He had sexual relationship with her. And we know that this particular sin in David's life was very destructive in his whole family. Matter of fact, the implications of the sin never left him at all. It followed him to his grave. Even though we know that he would, remember the implications, the results of this kind of sin in the Old Testament was death. But God forgave him. The Nathan prophet came to him and says, David, you're the man. You committed this sin. You robbed this innocent, this, this lamb from the, hus- the, the wife of, of Uriah. You robbed her from him. And so you're the man. You're guilty. So, but that, that is all, you find this all over, all over Scripture. You see, your heart, passion, desires, and then your volition makes things up to take it, makes plans to take it. So if I can put it to death at the eye gate, that's why I remember the passage I mentioned in Job, right, where he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that how then could I gaze on a virgin, right? How can, how can I do that? So that's the first thing. The second thing is you must avoid any person who might lead you into temptation. That means you need to cut off all relationships, companionship with persons who have been involved with you in wrongdoing, and then you must form wholesome and pure new friendships to fill the void. Remember what Paul told the church in the context of the resurrection. He says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals, right? So that is definitely uh, something that you have to be concerned about. And then thirdly, you must avoid every situation that might lead you into temptation. 
too much time alone with nothing to do places you in the way of temptation. You must plan to become active in some kind of wholesome work, hobby, or study. Remember what the Scriptures tells, tells us in Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is, here it is, faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, also so that you will be able to endure it. Right? You will be able to get through it with, on the side of victory, because the Spirit of God has been given to you, the Word of God has been given to you, the church has been given to you, truth has been given to you, that you would be able to say no to the sin and run from it if need be. And then you need to consider your thinking habits. Your thinking habits. What kind of things fill your thought life? Practice avoiding every book, magazine, TV program, movie, video, computer program, internet site that might prove sexually stimulating. Remember, if garbage and filth gets into your mind, garbage and filth will come out of your mind. Violence, crime, and sex, that's what usually sells, right? It will take over your thoughts and hamstring your morals. Instead, you and I must read and memorize and know the Word of God, especially portions that will provide help for you in time of temptation. Some of these passages of scriptures are good ones to memorize and to get your familiar with when it comes to filling your mind with the Word of God to enable you to resist temptation. Also, listen to the Word of God preached. So it will renew your mind, and, and you can get God's point of view. on the, you're, you're not getting God's point of view anywhere in the world. You're not getting God's point of view, many, many of us, from our own families, because they never had God's point of view. So you're only going to get God's point of view in the church that are, that are preaching and, and using the Word of God as our final rule of, of authority for life and godliness, right? And then, of course, remember, keep your mind on the right things, uh, whatever is pure. Let your mind dwell on these things. That's what Paul told the Philippians. Also, you, may, you must maintain a regular prayer life. You must practice calling um, that passage of Scripture where it says, the word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you should be something that we are considering. Also, our Prayer, you must practice calling upon God when sudden temptation strikes. God will answer any sincere request for help. That's what he'll do. He'll answer us. God wants you to win the battle. And remember when Jesus was walking the earth and he came to a time where he was going to be crucified and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying and then he said to his disciples, Please pray with me. Pray for not only me, but for yourselves. And this is what he says to them. And this is very telling here, this passage of Scripture. For he, he tells them, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's always the case. So you want to strengthen the spirit and weaken the flesh. That's the goal of, a, of, of the Spirit of God. Strengthen the Spirit and weaken the flesh. And then, of course, some of the practical things is this. Consider your appearance. Clothes and morals are closely linked. Women who dress provocatively to arouse impure thoughts in the minds of men have sagging morals. Men can do the same. Modesty is the best policy. I would say, no. Nah. Holiness is the best policy, which will include modesty. So also you must make yourself accountable to someone who is more mature than you. For a, a, a man, a male. For a woman, a, a mature Christian woman, of course a woman in the congregation. And then we need to keep our line between the unmarried state and the married state drawn distinct and clear Remember, chastity before marriage is what pleases God and how God designed things. And you have to trust him that he's going to enable you 
when he gives you desires in your heart to want to honor him. And then view marriage as something set apart, something very special and sacred before God and also to you because it's a right for granting a special place of privilege. Uh, It's a special place where the sexual union can take place in which God designed. And then remember, fall in love with the Lord Jesus and desire to want to live for him alone. Keep pure for God and for that special someone in the future. You're keeping yourself pure for that person. If you, if the Lord uh, will have give you someone to marry, he's keeping you pure for that person, and then he's keeping you pure if you never get married for himself. So if, if anybody here today has fallen into wrongful, sinful practices, remember, it is possible to break these habits in the power of God's Spirit, that the Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to forgive you of past sins and to enable you who are his children to keep you free from such sin in the future. But you must be willing to do your part and then cast yourself on the mercy of God for deliverance. Now, if you remember in closing, one day, as recorded in John chapter 8, Jesus commented on adultery. The sin of adultery has an awfulness to it, but the forgiveness of Christ has a wonder to it. The scheming, remember, religious leaders of Jesus' day tried to entrap him by bringing a woman before him who violated the seventh commandment. According to the Old Testament law, the crime was punishable by stoning. They wanted Jesus to condemn her or else be forced to show that he, his refusal to carry out the law of God was, of course, a rejection of the law of Moses. What did Jesus say to them? This is what he said to them. But when they persisted asking him, it says in John, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. So what happened is that convicted by their own guilty consciences, the crowd of accusers slipped away one by one, but the woman, he spoke words of pardon and mercy. No matter how deep and dreadful the sin, the Savior stands ready to forgive all who seek his mercy. As the scripture continued in John Chapter 8, verse 7 through 12, it says, when, he, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones who had more sin. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the, in the center of the court, straightened up. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Don't commit sin like this anymore. Of course, there there may be an assumption there that she did come to Christ, right? Or in verse number 12, it says, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus wasn't condoning her sin. He was showing that no one, there is no one who has not in some way committed that sin. And so therefore, but there is always forgiveness with Christ. There's always mercy with Christ. And that's where we run to. It's again, the law in the Christian's life will keep us running to Christ, where we receive cleansing of our sin, where he cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. That's the promise he gives us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Lord, we want to have command of our bodies 
a command that is led by your Holy Spirit. We want our minds to be transformed that we would know the good and the acceptable will of God. And Lord, may we have the strength that when we are tempted in this way, that Lord, the power of temptation would become less and less as we grow more and more in godliness. And I pray, Lord, that we would find our joy and our happiness in this life in you. But also that we might stand before you unashamed one day because our lives have honored the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today we want to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to you because we know this is our reasonable service of worship. And we want to do that for one with one motivation because of your mercy, because you did not give us what we deserve in Christ. And Lord, for that we are forever thankful. And we thank you, Lord, today. Make us people who every day desire more to walk in holiness than to commit sin. And I pray this in your name. Amen.